Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. All right, will you turn with me to Acts chapter 24, where Tommy led us in reading just a moment ago. And uh, I like that song. As far as the newer songs go, uh, ones that are written in the last century, that's, <laughs> that's one of my favorite ones. Um, it's uh, from the Heidelberg Catechism. It's, it's a creed, a confession of faith. I remember a while back, uh, Chris and I were going through that uh, catechism, and I was trying to make her learn all those answers. You get the short version of the answer there in that song, um, but a lot of doctrinal truth, I mean, really summed up everything uh, about salvation and the blessings of salvation for us. Um, Acts chapter 24, and uh, I'll give you a moment to get there. It was an exciting day. I, I, we weren't able to advertise this because I didn't find out till Friday, but we're looking forward at the end of the second service. We get to baptize someone. That's always a blessing. Amen. And so Robert Fletcher, that's Jewish, uh, Lewis's younger brother, right? I think, yeah, younger, a year and a half younger than uh, Lewis. He's been coming with Junior and Sandy for about the last six months, moved down here from West Virginia, and he came to me and uh, wanted to follow the Lord and Believer's baptism, you know, said, this is the next step. I'm, I'm saved. Uh, I don't know why I've waited so long. Better late than never, Right. So let's get it done, and we praise the Lord for that, that he gets to publicly testify of his uh, following Jesus uh, later on after the second service. But um, we learned last week in Acts chapter 23 uh, that Claudius Lysias, he's that Roman uh, captain of the soldiers that had rescued Paul from that violent Jewish mob uh, that wanted to kill him. That captain, he sent Paul up here to Felix, uh, up the chain of command to the Roman governor, and uh, the of the province. Uh, he's in Caesarea. And this morning we are uh, going to study together, learn what happens when Paul goes before this governor, Felix. Uh, once again, this is another courtroom drama. That's kind of how the book of Acts closes. Um, these things dominate the end of the book of Acts. But uh, once again, Paul is going to have the opportunity to testify of his faith in Jesus Christ um, before governmental leaders. God promised Paul that he would way back when Paul was first saved in Acts chapter 8. Um, later on, uh, Paul was also told that he was going to do that um, by Jesus in a vision. He saw Jesus. And so uh, we read chapter 24 earlier before we study it together this morning. Let's ask God's blessing on our time together in his word. Father, we come to your word now. Ask your Holy Spirit who's present in the lives of every single believer here and dwelling us. Uh, Lord, desiring to fill us, I pray that he would have unobstructed ministry uh, in revealing the truth of your word. One of his ministries is illuminating the truth, so please help us understand why it is you have given us these 27 verses here in chapter 24 of Acts. Um, there's a lot of truth here. We were obviously, in the book of Acts, always encouraged and motivated to live like these early Christians did, to have their kind of boldness in sharing the gospel, their passion to see people come to know Jesus as Savior, whether it just be a, a commoner on the street or whether it be the governor of the province. And um, God, help us to understand what it is you want us to learn from this today. 
May we respond to your truth uh, as, as your Holy Spirit leads us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, again, this is like a courtroom drama in verses 1 through 9. We're introduced to the plaintiffs in this uh, courtroom, and we see their accusations in the first nine verses. The plaintiffs in this situation uh, is the Jewish high priest Ananias, along with some other uh, elders, some of the top-level Sanhedrin members he brings with them. Verse 1 says, after five days, they make their way uh, up to Caesarea uh, from Jerusalem to bring charges against Paul before this Roman governor, Felix. And you'll notice a new name in verse 1, a fellow named Tertullus. He's described here as a certain orator. Uh, what this means is that these boys hired a lawyer. This is an important case to them, a state-level Supreme Court kind of thing. And Ananias and the Sanhedrin, they want Paul out of their hair for good. And so they hire Tertullus to represent them in this case. And then in verses 2 through 4, Tertullus begins his opening statement. The accusations actually don't start till verse 5. Instead, in verses 2 through 4, Tertullus showers Felix with a cascade of flattery. I want you to look at what he says in verses 2 to 4. I'm going to read it a little differently than Tommy did, maybe with a little um, somewhat sarcastic spin. But this is what Tertullus says. Seeing that by thee, Felix, we enjoy great quietness. And that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness, notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. What a bunch of garbage. <laughs> I mean, seriously. His, he's going to make accusations. The accusations are about as long as that opening statement of fluffing uh, his honor up. Uh, now, I say that because of what history records for us about Felix. Now, I mean, not here in Acts 24, but what historians of that time, Josephus, a Roman historian named Tacticus, what they tell us, uh, we, we know that, that Felix began life as a slave. Began as a slave. And, uh, but he had a brother, and his brother became... Uh, good friends with the high and mighty, even to the point of the Roman emperor and Claudius at this time. And eventually that connection brought Felix some freedom. It brought him a citizenship, and he began ascending the political ladder. Uh, the Roman historian Tacticus had this to say about Felix. He was a master of cruelty and lust in how he governed. He exercised the powers of a king, but with the spirit of a slave. He indulged in every license and excess, thinking that he could do any evil act with impunity because of who he was and because of his position. Sounds like a lot of people in government now, but I'll just leave that right there. Um, this lawyer, Tertullus, in his opening statement, he has already let us know the whole direction that this, this case is going to go. And it's lie after lie. It started with lies right here. And I have to wonder if Ananias and the other Sanhedrin members present after uh, Tertullus says all these things, I mean, did they get nauseated? Were they getting a little queasy at what he just said? Pastor and theologian John Stott wrote that Felix had put down several Jewish insurrections in the same time period. Uh, insurrections against the Roman occupying government, Felix put them down with such barbaric brutality that he earned himself the horror, not the thanks and all this stuff that Tertullus is saying. He earned himself the, the horror of the Jewish population. Thousands. He had ordered the thousands be massacred. massacred. Uh, he allowed Roman soldiers to go into any home at any time and loot it 
destroy Jewish homes. So after all this disgusting flattery, Tertullus finally begins, or he brings um, three main accusations here, beginning in verse 5. First of all, he says, throughout the world. So this is a political accusation. And it's one that would have the strongest response by a Roman government who valued probably more than anything peace at all times throughout its empire. Uh, Paul is accused here in verse 5. He's a troublemaker. He's a worldwide troublemaker. Everywhere he goes. And then at the end of verse 5, here's the second accusation. Paul participates in an illegal religion. He's a ringleader, it says there, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And this too would be a political accusation. See, the Roman government only allowed certain state-sponsored, state-approved religions. Now, Judaism was one of them. But Tertullus is here arguing that Paul is leading an illegal religion that's spun out of Judaism, a sect. He uses that word. In the Greek, it's heresios. It's where we get our English word for heresy. And then this lawyer is trying to divorce Christianity from any relation to Judaism here. And then third, in verse 6, here's the final accusation. It's the original one that started this whole debacle uh, chapters ago. Paul had supposedly profaned the temple. He had been falsely accused way back at the Feast of Pentecost when he first came to Jerusalem, um, falsely accused by certain Jews from Asia that he brought a Gentile inside the temple where only Jewish, ethnically Jewish people were allowed. Now, all three of these are false accusations, and all three of them are serious. Because all three of them are capital-level offenses. Paul could be killed, uh, sentenced to death, if found guilty for any of these. And at the end of verse 6, Tertullus also gives a, very, a fairly twisted account of what happened uh, when Paul supposedly tried to bring that Gentile into the temple. It says, we took him, whom we took, and we would have judged him according to our law. Now, for one, Paul didn't attempt to bring a Gentile into the temple. That was completely fabricated, false accusation. But secondly, they had no plans to take him and judge them according to their law. There was a violent mob that rose up, and they were trying to kill uh, Paul. The Roman soldiers had to rescue him. And then Tertullus turns to the Jews who are representing him in verse 9, or who he's representing in this courtroom in verse 9. And he says, what do you all say? And they say, yep, 100%. Everything he said, Tertullus, that, that's true. We testify in agreement. And so now in verses 10 through 21, we learn of Paul's uh, answer, the defendant's answer. And, and well, what a contrast from the ridiculous level of flattery from Tertullus. Paul simply says in verse 10, your honor, it's a joy for me to be able to come here and, and testify. I bet it was a joy for him. You know, it is a joy. When you have the truth on your side, when you have a clear conscience, even when you're fending off false accusations, you can have peace and you can have joy. Christian, there's no peace like the peace of walking in the truth. And that's, what, um, that's where Paul begins from with, with this first accusation. Remember, it's, it's that he's a worldwide troublemaker. He's instigating riots everywhere. Paul says, well, you know, I've been in Caesarea for five days now. And um, I was in Jerusalem where this whole thing down for just seven days. That, that's a total of 12. But I was only in Jerusalem for seven. That is hardly enough time to plan and, and instigate a riot. And then in verses 12 and 13, Paul says, there's nobody here who can testify that I did any of these things specifically who can say that I was in the temple or anywhere in Jerusalem that I was arguing with people. There's no specific instances of this uh, that have been provided in testimony. 
And in verses 14 and 15, Paul addresses a second false accusation that he was the leader of an illegal, uh, non-state approved religion. And this one's interesting, and it's important that we, we see what the Bible has to say about this. And I mean the entire Bible. Paul says in verse 14, But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy. Remember, um, that word is what the earliest Christians used to describe themselves. The way, or that way. They would call themselves uh, members of the way or followers of the way. I like that. Uh, We follow the one who's the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? So that's how they used to describe themselves. And here's what Paul says in verse 14. They call our faith heresy, uh, a Nazarene sect. They're calling it an unapproved, uh, illegal to the government, Roman government religion. But, but it wasn't. It wasn't. Now, if we have to make an honest biblical evaluation of this whole situation, Christianity is the religion from Genesis to Revelation. All right, what, what I mean here is it's not some new spinoff of Judaism. Hey, if anybody started a spinoff religion or a, a spinoff sect, it was the Jews who rejected Jesus at his first coming. It was the Jews who did not understand what God had said or had rejected what God said through the prophets, starting way back in Genesis when he promised Abraham that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he's talking about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would come. You understand? I mean, Christianity is the one religion here. It's not a spinoff sect. And, and, and um, Paul tells Felix in, in verses 16 and 17, I've got a clear conscience. I mean, I came to Jerusalem not to start a riot. I came there to worship. I actually came there bringing a love offering from all of these churches to give to those in need. And Paul says in verses 18 and 19, certain Jews from Asia found me there in the temple worshiping, not causing trouble, And they're the ones who made this uh, accusation, and there's not a one of them that's here to testify against me. As Paul closes his argument in in verses 20 and 21, he tells Felix this, none of my accusers are here to testify about any single specific instance of what I'm being charged with. The only thing I'm guilty of is preaching about eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. The plaintiffs have made their accusations. Paul, the defendant, has given his answer. Now it's time for the ruling. Should be quick. Shouldn't take long. Well, not be a lot of deliberation. But what we see instead is the is the judge's ambivalence. Verse 22 tells us that when Felix heard these things, having a more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them. Deferred them. And he said, When Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your matter. So he wants to interview that Roman governor. At least that's what he's saying his reason is. There's some interesting information here. Uh, First of all, Felix has a more perfect knowledge of that way. Now that could be, um, that's a description of Christianity again. And and so that could mean that Paul's... Paul's presentation, Paul's explanation of his faith and his defense, it helped Felix understand Christianity better. Or it's possible that Felix had a better understanding of it than the Roman captain Lysias um, because he'd interacted with Christians before. As a Roman governor of, um, of Palestine at that time, yeah, he would have known about Christians. I mean, it wasn't just Paul leading this effort. I mean, the church in Jerusalem was active. Uh, the gospel was going out of it here, there, and everywhere. He might have even heard the gospel prior to this. But regardless, we see the ambivalence of Felix in what should have been an open and closed verdict of not guilty. It's now a verdict that's held in perpetual recess. And we could call it a no 
decision. And verse 23 lets us know that Felix commanded a centurion to keep Paul under some form of house arrest. He, he has got some liberty. People can come and go and see him and minister to him. Um, but he's going to be there until a final verdict is reached. And we learn later in verse 27 that this is going to be two years before his case is heard again. When, when Felix is going to be replaced, I think it said uh, Portius Festus came into Felix's room. That's a King James Version way of saying um, he's getting replaced. Felix is getting replaced by a guy named uh, Festus here. And um, you know, verse 24, 26 tell us a little bit more about Felix in general and also more about his ambivalence. Uh, at, at some point, verse 24 tells us at some point during, during this two-year hiatus, uh, Felix, he calls Paul to come before him. Uh, and uh, his wife, Drusilla, he wants to hear about Paul's faith in Christ. Maybe what Paul said in his defense gave him a little spark. He's like, hmm, yeah, I want to hear some more about that. So he says, come and talk to me and my wife, Drusilla, about it. Drusilla was Felix's third wife. Uh, to get her, he had broken up her marriage to an Assyrian king. Uh, his first wife, just it's interesting information, uh, his first wife was a granddaughter of Anthony and Cleopatra. So, I mean, this is a, a top-level guy in the Roman government. Verse 25 gives us a topic. So, so Paul says, yeah, I'll come and talk to you about my faith. And it gives us the topics that Paul talked about with them in regard to Christianity. Righteousness, temperance, meaning self-control, the Holy Spirit helping you overcome sin in your life. And then the judgment to come, where we're all headed one day. And what does it say that Felix's response was to Paul's teaching? He trembled. He trembled. He was under conviction because of the truths that Paul was telling him from God's word. Those truths confronted his lifestyle, how he was living. And then what does Felix do in response? Does he receive Jesus as Savior? Does he accept the forgiveness of sin and, and repent and, and receive eternal life? No, it says in verse 25, he tells Paul, go your way for this time. And when it's convenient, I'll, I'll call for you again. Meaning I've heard enough for now. I'm being convicted by the Holy Spirit on account of what you said, and I might hear more from you when it's more convenient for me. Now, we, we do know what Felix did find convenient, and we've been told that here. According to verse 26, he often called Paul before him, not so much to hear the gospel, but he was hoping Paul would give him a little money, a bribe to loose Paul, to free Paul. Felix found the things of this world convenient, um, but not responding to the Holy Spirit's conviction, not forsaken sin and embracing God's gift of eternal life through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And um, listen, ambivalence is such a sneaky sin. I mean, it addresses itself as just waiting, being careful. I don't like to make quick decisions, uh, a conscious effort to make the right decision. You know, Jesus, through the apostle John, he spoke to a church like this in Revelation 3, the church of Laodicea, the last one that he talks to, the one that you know, most theologians believe is uh, symbolic of the church of our day. And what was the problem with the church at Laodicea? They were lukewarm, ambivalent. Jesus says, I'd rather you be hot. <laughs> I mean, I want you to be on fire for me. I want that from everybody. But if you're not going to be, I'd just rather you be cold and you'd be like you don't even know me. Act like you don't know me. You're not even saved. I'd rather that than you be ambivalent. And because um, he said, because you are, I want to spew you out of my mouth. I mean, I'm, I'm disgusted by that. Listen, when the Holy Spirit speaks to us through God's word, 
um, any ambivalence, any delay, that's a no. It's like us telling God no. Uh, anything other than yes, Lord, I, I humble myself to uh, do what you're telling me to do. I, I want to change what you're telling me needs to change in my life. I, I want to go where you're telling me to go. Anything other than that is, is disobedience. It's you and I decided not to obey the Lord. And church, the claims, I hope we understand this. The claims of Jesus and the invitation of Christ to come and follow me, it is rarely convenient for us. Um, but don't wait for that. <laughs> if you wait until it's convenient, you're going to be waiting for an eternity. That's true about initially coming to Christ to be saved. Maybe you're here this morning and you've heard the gospel before and um, you've heard the voice of the Holy Spirit before inviting you to repent and give your life to Jesus Christ. And you're like, mm, later, I got plenty of time to do it. Um, I will at some point. Don't do that any longer. And tell God right now in prayer, I want to be saved, even as I'm talking. And it's also true about you and I who have already trusted in Christ as Savior. How many times does the Holy Spirit use God's Word, whether it's here on Sunday morning or in some Bible study or even your personal uh, time with the Lord, having devotions during the day? How many times has the Holy Spirit used God's Word and He's convicting you of sin and He's shown you something in your life that needs to change, uh, something that you've yet roped off from God and you said, no, you can't have that yet, but pride or something else has kept you from humbly responding in faith. And it's kept you from turning from that sin and running to Jesus and saying, I'm done. I'm done. You can have all of me. I'm all yours. Look, stop waiting for a convenient time. This morning is a convenient time. That's what God tells us in 2 Corinthians 6 too. It says, look, now is the appointed time. Look, today is the day of salvation. And that's where God is. He's gracious and, and he's so full of mercy. And in his word, he promises us full and free forgiveness for whosoever will obey his voice and whosoever will turn from sin and turn to him. But I hope we understand that he doesn't ever promise us tomorrow or another chance to do that because of procrastination on our part. I have time to come and lead us in a moment to respond to God's word this morning. Holy Spirit, we yield to you. We yield to your wielding of God's word in our lives. And however the Holy Spirit's moving you to respond uh, today, I just ask that you'd obey.